This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora koutou, no mai hare mai. Welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here, where we chat with experts to learn about climate change here in Ōtotahi. I'm Molly. And I'm Emily. Join us as we go on a journey to find explanations, solutions, and hope for the future. Hey, I'm really excited to have Lindsay here in the studio with us for this episode. Lindsay and I work together and we often have really cool conversations about biking and public transport and so I really wanted to get some of our conversations recorded and heard by our listeners. Kia ora Lindsay, welcome to It's Getting Hot in Here. Thank you, I'm excited to be on the podcast. Could you introduce yourself, say what your name is and what you do? Sure, I'm Lindsay Conroe, I'm a lecturer at the University of Canterbury in the School of Earth and Environment and by training, I'm a transport geographer, an urban geographer, but my research kind of tends toward more equity aspects of transport and kind of some of the implications of how we make decisions, the data that underlie decisions, the type of analysis we do to make decisions when we're in transport and urban planning. What have you studied or what made you passionate about active transport? Oh, yeah. My background is in transport and urban geography. And so just kind of started with like spatial aspects of transport. And from there, it's kind of developed into this thing of understanding the really broad impacts that come with transport in terms of equity implications and I guess the interaction between urban development and transportation and this kind of like feedback loop. So that's pretty much what I've studied and analyzed. A lot of it is in the background, going all the way back to the data that we use to make decisions about transportation, because we want to make data-driven decisions. But if the data that underlie those decisions are biased in some way or the quality is low, this is going to impact our decisions. Can you tell us some of the challenges in getting good quality data about transport? Yes. One of, well, one of the challenges that's particular to active transport is that we don't actually know a lot about where people walk or ride bikes. And traditionally, the way that we collect these data is through surveys of just asking people on that day or in the week prior or for a week, we collect information about how they get around. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we lose trips that people would normally take just because it's not their routine day or week but also that's pretty limited, right? It's just a sample of the population. The other way that we get data in particular about cycling is with counts. Like it's just somebody standing on a corner counting the number of cyclists that go through. And that's okay because we get a great picture, but it's just of that one intersection, for example. So getting a view of like a citywide travel pattern is a little bit more difficult and now that everybody has like a GPS sensor in their smartphone, we can get a lot of data that's very specific and very detailed about where people go. But the limitation of that is that there are only specific types of people that tend to record the, where they walk or ride or whatever it is on those apps. And so this is kind of where it turns around into if we're trying to make a decision about where 
where there are safety concerns around cycling, for example, or where we should put infrastructure, if it's only like bold recreational riders who are using the apps and we're making decisions based on that, we're losing a lot of information about day-to-day trips that people might be making and we might not be placing infrastructure in the best places for people to to take advantage or, or what's going to actually support people in taking up cycling as a travel mode. Cool. And I understand that often councils do purchase data, kind of like Strava data, and use that to inform infrastructure decisions. And so one way you can help with increasing biking infrastructure decisions is to use those tracking apps like Strava although it's got its pros and cons too. Yeah, I was curious when you were talking about those cyclists that are maybe using these tracking apps are the ones that are often counted. Who goes uncounted? And in particular, are there certain like vulnerable communities that aren't often represented or are there communities where people might bike but aren't now or might walk but aren't now? Could you talk a bit about that? Well, because they're collected by smartphones, we automatically exclude anybody who doesn't have a smartphone or has a smartphone that's too old to support the app in its current version or whatever it is, then, like I mentioned, we tend to lose people who are just doing short trips, like a short commute trip, a few kilometers to work or to a shop. A lot of the apps are based on competition, and so you don't look very competitive if you're just doing a slow pedal over to the supermarket. Those are the biggest things that we miss. And we know that the people who tend to have less access to smartphones are people in more deprived areas, lower income people. We tend to have aging adults who maybe don't feel as proficient with a phone and wouldn't take up using the app. Yeah. When you were talking about your research, you were saying that what we know about how people go about transport may influence the transport infrastructure we have. So how do you think that data and those potential limitations might influence the infrastructure that we see out in the world. One of the main impacts would be that if people are going out for a recreational ride, they're probably looking for a street or a road where they're not going to have many barriers that are going to keep them stopping and starting their ride, right? They just want something continuous. And so if we just solely looked at the data, it might look like, oh, we should put cycle lanes or we should put protected cycle lanes on these more rural or outlying roads when really when we're thinking about supporting day-to-day travel and people's trips and commutes, we want to build up infrastructure in a denser urban area where it's even more feasible for you to make a small trip because things are a little bit more accessible, a little bit more close to you. So that's the major thing. And we also have recreational cyclists tend to be a little bit more daring or bold, right? They're not as, they still care about safety, but they're not as inhibited by safety in terms of going out for a ride. And so we might also make the mistake of thinking like a lot of people ride on that road, it's probably safe. So maybe we don't actually need a cycle lane or a protected cycle lane there because people are using the road. It's not a problem. Those are probably the major things of just getting maybe the wrong idea about where things are working and not working based on a single set of data. Talking about like cycleways and safety, I know for myself coming from the U.S., I 
had never seen cycleways and I had never felt very safe at all biking. And so coming to Christchurch, it was sort of amazing to even see that this infrastructure existed and that I could feel safe, like commuting or doing these day-to-day trips, even though, you know, obviously there's more to be done, but like even the existence of it was something that was like very welcoming to me. Safety is overwhelmingly in almost all of the research, the number one inhibitor from keeping people from cycling, either for fun or recreation or for as a transport mode to get from place to place. And so, yeah, just even seeing the infrastructure and you kind of get a vibe of that there's a culture of cycling here, that people actually do it. And then we have people, you're brave enough now to take a ride to wherever you're going. And then I don't ride, but I see you riding and I think, oh, maybe that is something that I could do. And so you kind of get this nice inducement of cycling. You see more people cycle, more people cycle. You build more infrastructure, more people cycle. So it's kind of one of these positive feedback loops that we like. Yeah, and what I understand is that when you get more cyclists, they may still be driving as well, and so that may also change driving behavior to be more considerate of cyclists if you've got more people cycling, because there's either more cyclists or more people who are both a cyclist and a driver. Yeah, you definitely can start to understand the nuance of each mode a little bit better and have a little bit more, maybe it's weird to think about empathy on the road for people, but think about like the different stress levels associated with each mode, for example, or what you might worry about. We know that safety is a large barrier to cycling, but how does that play into different gender? Yeah, when it, overall in transport, it doesn't even have to be cycling. We see that there are differential impacts for women and girls in terms of their perceptions of safety with transport. So this can be public transport, it can be active transport when you're out walking walking and cycling, but perhaps even with driving a more acute awareness of what the actual risks of driving in a car would be. And then you add to that a lot of times women are charged with like childcare or whatever it is, so they have kids in the car and you kind of have a, a different, I think, thought in terms of the safety of what you're doing and the behavior of other people and how that might impact your kids who are in the car. It's it's a different mentality, but either way, especially with women, so it's a more acute awareness of safety with all the modes and things that put you at risk. But there are just also differential things that happen in terms of harassment that you might experience that is a deterrent. If every time that I'm walking down the street, somebody shouts at me, it's not going to make me want to walk down the street anymore. And it's even a thing of the fear of that happening to you can keep you from taking that. Like if Emily, every time she comes over and has been on a bike ride, tells me that a car tried to, was aggressive maybe toward her, a driver was, or that somebody shouted something at her, it's going to make me think twice about whether I want to go for a ride and put myself in those circumstances. So, but there are also things with men experience physical violence on the streets also at notable rates, right? So it's not just, it's not a blanket, one risk is higher than the other for a particular gender. But I think it's that perception of safety that impacts women and inhibits them from taking trips that they would otherwise take that is kind of the one that we tend to focus on more. As a cyclist, I see a lot of the individual benefits. So I one of the reasons I cycle is because it's active, it, it keeps me healthy, I the environmental benefits are a big driver. But before coming to like 
work in this space of active transport, I didn't really know much about the wider benefits for the city to have more active transport. So could you talk about them? Yeah, like you said, the obvious benefit is physical activity to people, and we know that that helps your body, but this can also help your mental health in terms of physical activity benefiting you mentally, right? But what we also do when we're walking or cycling around our neighborhoods or to work or whatever it is, is you start to get a social connection that you wouldn't see with other modes, particularly driving in your private vehicle alone where you don't really interact socially with people. And it doesn't mean that you have to talk to everybody that you pass by on your bike or on the street, but it's this thing of seeing people out in your other environment. And it starts to have these wider benefits. Um, You might see the same person every day and you don't know who they are, but somehow you have this connection that is like, I see you every day. And it can also, that can also be a thing of seeing people who are like you or who represent people like you. And so you start to see in communities a better sense of belonging and like, I'm really in my neighborhood. We also have, in terms of community resilience and community strength, if we're kind of used to seeing people out on the street, kind of removes a a stranger barrier in terms of when we do need to lean on each other for help or for whatever it is, if we need to kind of get together to make a change in our neighborhood. Yeah, the idea was really revolutionary for me, how much with cars the roads are being used to transport people. And of course cars are transporting people, but when things are further out, we allow ourselves to drive, and then having the ability to drive means that we plan for our daily needs to be further than walking distance but when we are driving we're not having that contact with others that you talk about and so yeah I do recognize that uh, I don't have that same opportunity to smile at someone else at the traffic lights or or find a face I recognize. I have a very quick anecdote that I thought of immediately when you were talking about the the social connection one day I was biking to the university and there's when the cycleway passes over passes over the Hagley Park Road, as you're going from Hagley Park towards like Mona Vale, there's often a bunch of cyclists there. And there was a cyclist in front of me and across the road from us was a man on a bicycle transporting two kids. And as they passed each other on the cycleway, the kids high-fived the man in front and they clearly knew him. They clearly had had met and knew that they did this route because they, ha- they had it planned perfectly and they were talking to each other across the road. I thought that was the coolest thing. It reminded me a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, actually, to that point, like, I love to see when families are out cycling, right, and doing the kids, shuttling the kids to school via bike is so cool. And it's one of those things of when we think about generational change. If I grow up with my parents taking me to school in a car, it might not make me think twice about driving a or continuing to drive my children but if I'm ridden to school on a bike by my parents it's a thing of once it's time for me to maybe become more independent my parents know the route they know it's safe and they're familiar with it I'm familiar with it and I might be more likely to take my bike too and so we can kind of think about modeling behaviors for 
not just children, but other people in our neighborhood for the future. And just, it's again, more of that, the more we do it, the more people will do it and the more and more will do it, which is the kind of change that we really need to stimulate, so. That's awesome. So I also had a follow-up question and I know there's been like a lot of talk about bike lash, often from people who are very car focused, but also from people who say that it's not very good for business. So I'm curious about what your response to that sort of point of view is. Is it bad for business or is it good or neutral? For most of the research that we've seen on this, cycling and cycling infrastructure is good for business. We tend to see over and over that businesses do benefit from cycling and cycleways and it, it does stimulate local economies. So some of the concern, I understand the concern for sure, because it does require a shift in your customer's behavior. And you as a business owner, your, I guess, perception of who your customers might be or what they're like. But yeah, I think a lot of it is a little bit of unnecessary fretting over something that isn't often realized in reality. One of the major other concerns that we get is people who own property just a homeowner or whatever it is of there are going to be negative impacts to my property value if you put cycleways outside my house. And this is another one that we often don't see this as reflected in reality. So, and it often in transport in general, when we have transport solutions that are focused on public transport hubs or active like walking and cycling infrastructure, it tends to increase property value. So it's not often intuitive for people, but the outcomes are often a lot more positive than that perception. So hopefully we can kind of see a shift in that mentality a little bit over time when people realize, or when hopefully those negative impacts aren't reflected in profits or whatever they're exactly concerned about. And it seems to me that maybe instead of thinking about like what might change you could think about what might be gained like maybe you'll gain customers who don't have cars because now they feel like there's a space for them they can park their bike they can go in and you might actually see benefit from that that you weren't expecting because you were just thinking about the negatives that might happen if you took away those parking spots that's really interesting about the house prices and cycling infrastructure Are you able to talk about how some wealthier neighborhoods tend to have better cycle infrastructure? Yeah, we do tend to see this differential distribution of types of transport infrastructure that people can take advantage of. And it comes up a lot when we start talking about access and how much people can get to in their day-to-day life but also how many modal options they might have at their disposal. And it does tend to be that wealthier or less deprived neighborhoods have better access to cycle lanes or cycle infrastructure of whatever type. But then there's this other side of the argument that tends to be a thing of we know we need to make shifts in how we're traveling just because of our carbon footprint that's associated with private motor vehicles And because of just in general, it can be difficult to be healthy in an urban environment. And so if we're out walking and cycling more, this helps us be healthier, right? So it becomes an argument about driving is really, really expensive. And so great cycling infrastructure 
would be good for lower income people or people in more deprived neighborhoods because it's a lower cost transport option. But then it becomes the other side of it that is like, if part of the reason why we're doing this is to reduce our environmental impact, who should bear the burden of that? Should it be wealthier, more well-to-do people who, because of other factors going on in their life, they can sort of bear, I guess, more of the burden that might come with active transport if it takes you longer to get where you're going or there's a little bit more deliberate planning that has to go into a trip that you're going to make. So there's kind of multiple sides to that kind of thing. But yeah, it does tend to be that wealthier and less deprived people benefit more from. And we also see too that wealthy neighborhoods will often, people in those neighborhoods will often resist public transport infrastructure coming into, they don't want a bus going through their neighborhood, for example, too. So they're sort of excluding some types of infrastructure and sort of approving others. We were just talking about social inclusion. And so I wanted to know more about the connection between social inclusion and public transport, especially for vulnerable communities like older adults or people with disabilities. So a big part of transport or what we want to achieve with transport is inclusive societies. And part of that is being able to participate in your society and the more modal options that we provide to people that aren't driving. For people who either can't drive or don't want to drive anymore, the more inclusive our society can be, the more opportunities we can reach to socialize with people or to take part in cultural events or connect with natural areas that we enjoy, things like that. But One of the things particularly with older adults in public transport is that it it can start to become sort of a social hub to ride the bus for older people. And we know in New Zealand, if you have a super gold card, you can ride at off-peak hours on some public transport systems, right? And so we see great uptake among older adults. They get on the bus, they ride around, they might meet at a Mick Cafe to catch up over a coffee with some friends. And it keeps them out participating in our communities for longer and more easily. And one of the other benefits of that is we want different types of people in our neighborhoods because different types of people use our neighborhoods in different ways. So it's a thing of if I'm a young professional, I go to work from 9 to 5. So from 9 to 5, I'm in my office. I'm not buying stuff. I'm not out on the street. I'm not present in the community. But if we give older adults a way to get around or make it easy for them to get around or they're able to walk or ride a bike around their neighborhood, they're out from nine to five if they're retired or a pensioner or not working for whatever reason. And so we start to have this kind of more lively neighborhood that it's good for local economies. It's good for our community. It makes everything stronger and and the impacts are the same too when we think about the lower same, I mean, people. The impacts are the who, same too when we, we don't necessarily want them to have to spend a, a large portion of their income on maintaining or buying a car or fueling it. And so when we have feasible, affordable transport options for people who are kind of living in these more deprived areas, then they also can participate in society more. And ultimately, like, it goes a lot to add to our social connection as people 
to see who's around us and who lives in our area to see people who are like us or people who aren't like us. It's kind of enriching our day-to-day lives on that level. So how do you think our mindset around building our cities for cars influences the infrastructure that we see in terms of housing and businesses and things like that? And how does this change how people move around and get what they need? Right. So some people do have to drive for their job. And part of what our dialogue around this modal shift thing needs to be is that, yes, some people will have to drive for their job. And what we want to do is make it more efficient for them to drive, which then earns us more in hours of productivity, if you want to think of people somehow as units of product. And we also have these greater impacts with how we design urban areas and how transport impacts how we design urban areas. So when we have a car-dependent city, it tends to be that, yes, we have this dense city center. It tends to be a business district where a lot of people travel in for work. But when we start to build highways or motorways or roads that have a lot of carrying capacity for cars, it means that we can start building further and further away from that core because our commute time isn't impacted as much. And when we start building on that periphery of the city, we start to get this kind of uncontrolled expansion that is less dense and makes it more and more difficult to make your trips short, easy trips. And it would tend to be that people on the periphery of the city who can afford or on the periphery of the city is where affordable housing will be. So then we're also asking people who might be making a lower income to have a longer commute, even if they don't use a car for their commute, or they have a, a greater distance for their travel burden. And we are seeing greater distances between people's homes and their daily needed amenities, right? Right. Because of the car. Yeah. And then that probably makes it harder for people who are choosing to have an option like biking or walking because it's much further for them to go. So it's like not, it's a disincentive for doing the, not the status quo, which is driving a car. Right. One of the classic, I guess, aims with transport has always been improving traffic flow, right? We just want cars to be able to get places faster and without congestion And so there's a lot of this, we need to build more roads or we need to build more lanes and this will achieve these goals. But it has all these other negative effects. Like you said, our neighborhoods get less dense. It makes it less feasible for me to be able to walk around or cycle around to just undertake my day-to-day tasks. And then it becomes kind of this self-perpetuating system of just that well, now I have no option but to drive. I think some, a concept that I'm quite I'm waking up to is how many either habits or even regulations we have in place to help with traffic congestion and parking so that it's all smooth and easy to use a car. For example, having a minimum amount of car parking spaces when, in fact those car parking spaces could be used for different purposes. And if we had less cars on the road and less car parking spaces, more of that land could be used for 
other uses, i.e. housing or community gardens or parks or green spaces. One of the probably least intuitive or counterintuitive things about transport is this idea of when we do have, I'll start with congestion first, so when we do have traffic congestion, which is frustrating for a lot of people, it's stressful and it slows down your travel time, and so one of the implicit seeming benefits of cars is out the window if we're having slow travel times because of congestion. And the idea that people often have is we'll add a lane. If we have more space on the road, cars can move faster because there's more space, right? But the problem with that is this concept of induced demand where if when it becomes easier to move somewhere, easier to drive somewhere or faster, more people are going to make the decision to drive to that place. So there might be a little bit of a lag period where it does relieve congestion or does improve travel times. But soon, we tend to see that those new lanes or whatever the new infrastructure is fills up and we have kind of diminishing returns or no return or a negative impact of increasing that roading capacity. So it's not intuitive, but it's shown over and over and over again that it's not a great solution. But even more broadly, like you mentioned, when we make it easy to drive, people drive. And when we make it cheap to drive, people drive. And so when we do things like subsidize parking in a city by not making you pay the full price of parking or make parking free or cheap, it makes it so easy to drive that, of course, people are going to make that decision. And so one of the strategies that we use in urban areas is to disincentivize driving through some of these pricing tactics as one. So we might increase the cost of parking. It still doesn't pay for how much parking actually costs, but it might be a little bit more of a deterrent for you. Driving to a place, you might choose an alternative mode. Many of these disincentives for driving are cost-based we want to price people out of driving, basically. But this will, if we just have flat fees for things, if people have lower incomes, it's just a harder hit to their, a percentage of their income, for example. One of the things that we do in some urban areas is congestion pricing. So at peak hours of travel, usually when people are going to or from work, we charge a fee for somebody to use a road. If I make $10,000 a year on my income that I live on the periphery of the city for but might need to travel into the city a further distance, have to use a car because public transport at the periphery of the city is not good. This is whatever proportion of my income. If Emily makes $75,000 a year, it's a smaller proportion and it's not as big of a hit to her pocket. She doesn't have to start balancing out like, am I going to be able to buy vegetables this week or go to work. So some of those flat cost penalties definitely have unjust or inequitable impacts. So part of all of this is, and it's difficult because not everything can happen at the same time. And if we want to have a just transition to more sustainable transport, more resilient transport, there are going to be times when the burden that people bear for those changes is higher than others. So there may be a time where we have congestion pricing in a city center that low-income people 
are taking a huge hit for. It makes it really, really difficult for them to travel. But the level of service for public transport at the city periphery isn't there yet. And it takes time for us to start implementing that. And the cost implications might be different. Or you might not make a trip that you would have made if it were easier, which isn't necessarily something we want people to do, right? We want people out and participating in society. So we don't want to price you out of being able to be involved in your community, but we want to give you feasible alternatives. So make it attractive to take the bus or make it attractive or easy to walk or ride a bike to the places. And yeah, like you said, whether we think of streets as separate from our community or our neighborhood or the place where we live, they are part of it. And they take up a huge amount of space. Parking takes up a huge amount of space that oftentimes just sits dead. Like you might get during business hours that parking is used and then outside of business hours, if it's not used, it's just asphalt or gravel that's sitting there. And there are other ways that we could take advantage of that that maybe improve our community or stimulate the economy, our local economy more. So connecting spaces, like you said, turning uh, a car park into a little micro park or some other type of activity space that people can connect and actually be in their community and not just storing their private property. Yeah, it seems like we've sort of focused on cars for a really long time and had this mindset of like building our cities for cars. But where did this sort of like car dominant mindset come from? So around the 1940s and 50s is when cars buying a private vehicle became financially more feasible for a lot of people. And we had a lot of changes to production and industry that just provided more cars for people. So that's part of it. But then, because more people had cars, we started building infrastructure to accommodate the cars because we started to have congestion, which people don't like because the benefit of a car is to be able to get more places faster. And so one of the examples that I like to bring up is from Buffalo, New York, where I'm from. This is going way back to the 1950s. And Buffalo, early on, was designed as a city that had a lot of parks designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. He's a great parks person and understood the value of green space in an urban area. And so he was visualizing these parks as the lungs of a city. So in Buffalo, it's kind of designed as this large park that has these branches that come off of it that are parkways where people could drive. It was driving infrastructure, but they were kind of characterized by this huge median in the middle of them that was grassy, it was tree-covered, and you had one-direction traffic on either side of the median, but it basically maintained this community space, and it took green space, and it carried throughout the city, right? I'm kind of envisaging kind of like Linwood Ave. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is exactly like Linwood Ave, but with only one lane of traffic on either side. But what happened was more people started to get cars in Buffalo, and by the 50s, congestion was becoming a problem. So a transport engineer decided that one of the ways to improve congestion would be to remove one of the parkways. It was called Humboldt Parkway, and it was one of the best ones. It was just a really long green segment. It was one of the widest ones, super beautiful, old-growth trees. 
But the thing about Humboldt Parkway was that it was in a historically black area of Buffalo. In targeting this parkway, his idea was to remove the parkway and turn it into an expressway. And with the benefit of it will, it can carry more cars, there will be no traffic congestion, and we can keep people coming in and out of the city. Sounds great on paper, except for it has all of the problems that we know come with more faster, easier traffic flow is at some point that expressway is going to fill up and you're just going to have more congestion. But there are even broader impacts, the negative impacts to that area in particular, where one is that it made it easier for people to live in suburbs because they could drive further faster for a time. And so there's this whole basically white flight out of Buffalo and people started populating suburbs. So the city starts to spread out like we've talked about. It just gets wider and wider. The city center kind of gets dead. There's not a lot of commerce going on anymore because it's cheaper to run a business outside of the city center. People are living outside of the city center, so they're not spending money in the city center. So that's the city center impact and the impact to suburbs and the growing city. But then it also becomes a thing of you have a lot of traffic going through this neighborhood on a wide road with lots of lanes, higher speeds, that's cutting right through the neighborhood. And so what used to be this great parkway that people could gather on, I don't know what it was like exactly in the 1950s, but when I lived there, we'd have festivals, there'd be show, music shows on the parkways that were still there farmers markets and different types of events like that, right? It's a great gathering place. So what happened is you take that away and you take away this space that people can gather in and where people connect. So you take the parkway out, you pave over this, you have multi, multiple lanes of traffic. And so one of the negative impacts beyond just removing that park space and a place to connect socially was also there would be really bad bottlenecking going into the city. So at some point, this big expressway has to dump into city streets that don't have the same capacity. So slowing traffic down, backing it up even more. But another issue associated with that is that it makes it physically difficult to cross a street that you used to be able to cross. It's not a street anymore, it's an expressway. And so certain areas of it, they go down so you have bridge crossings some part of it, some parts of it are at street level but you might have median barriers and things that you can't cross so your intersections that used to be intersections or even a mid-block crossing where you go onto this grassy median partway through is gone and you've basically taken this neighborhood that used to have people who could talk to each other very easily see each other in their day-to-day and now they're completely separated by this hunk of asphalt and relatively fast-moving traffic. And that's an example of community severance when people bring that up. There are more, artic- more aspects of it than just a physical barrier getting in your way, but it has really negative impacts to communities in general. And we see this kind of common thread that lower income or racial or ethnic minority communities tend to see the negative impacts or tend to have these kinds of 
this kind of infrastructure built in their neighborhoods. So it's a huge issue with equity in things that are just not just in terms of how we're designing transport. And it sounds like that's probably something that's reflected in lots of towns and cities as well as Buffalo. It's just happened globally as we've shifted towards having cars being the dominant way to get around. Right. I think one of the frustrating things about it is when you when you start to learn some of these things is like we knew we knew from the 50s at the earliest definitely by the 70s that we were making this mistake and we keep making it and it's so frustrating when we know that we have alternatives that would work what is an upside you see to climate change an upside of climate change i see is that we're it's finally doing something to get governments to make the types of decisions that we've wanted them to make for decades at this point. So these things like putting in cycling infrastructure that makes it safer or easier for you to ride around your neighborhood or to get from place to place, making walkable spaces that have kind of a friendly community type atmosphere and make it a place that you want to spend time in where you can connect with other people who are around where you're stimulating the local economy because you're stopping in shops or spending more time out of your house. I wish it was something else driving the change, but this is a great impact. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lindsay, and talking to us about all these really interesting aspects of transport. Thanks, Lindsay, for coming along. It's been great to actually have a recorded conversation. And... I appreciate the expertise you've given us and hopefully opened some of our minds and given us a different perspective on transport um, from both a data and equity point of view. Oh, yeah, thank you. It was really enjoyable. Huge fan of the pod. In today's episode, I found it interesting to hear about how cycling data can be problematic. The data that's collected isn't necessarily representative of all cyclists and how there's a bias towards the more confident or the more recreational cyclists rather than the commuters or the short trips. And having not so good quality data can misinform decisions and policy and cycle infrastructure. So one thing I learned was the new term active transport. And active transport, it's a physical activity that's associated with getting from one place to another. So that includes walking, biking, skateboarding, or any sort of transport that's related to getting to public transport. So we learned about active transport and how it can more easily create a social connection between people as compared to just being inside a car. Also, we learned that these sorts of decisions, whether to be transported in a car or to engage in active transport are really intergenerational. So that if your parents are cyclists, then you're more likely to be a cyclist because you see that there are different options to transportation rather than if you're just transported in a car. Unlike Lindsay's point about how cycling infrastructure in a neighbourhood can make that neighbourhood more attractive. And so it may seem a good idea to advocate for cycling infrastructure in the less wealthy neighbourhoods. But 
it was interesting to me how cycling and public transport can sometimes be less convenient and why should we place the environmental footprint burden on those in lower income neighborhoods while the welfare continue to drive with that convenience? Another thing I found really interesting was the discussion of how lots of times when there have been issues with road congestion, so lots of cars on the road, the response has been to either add more roads or to widen roads. But in fact, they found that bigger roads don't actually reduce this congestion, but instead promote more people to drive. So it doesn't actually fix the problem. What would help with this congestion would be initiatives that incentivize people to use other transport other than cars or just incentivizing people not to drive in certain areas. And so that is the way to actually reduce congestion. And also another downside of this increase in the number of roads and in the widening of roads is that these roads become really difficult for people to cross who are perhaps walking or maybe skateboarding, engaging in this active transport. And it makes it more difficult for them to reach the other side of the road. And there could that could lead to something which we learned is called community severance, where people aren't able to connect with each other anymore on these two sides of a busy road. And we lose that social connection that's really important. Reflecting on what Lindsay said, it helped me put together the idea that I'd been thinking about around the car dependence that we have created. Cities have been designed to be drivable, and that includes making space for cars on the roads, but also cars for car parking, therefore widening the size and reducing the density of the city which has also allowed us and forced us to live further from the locations that we use on a regular basis, which then forces us to drive to those destinations and makes it even more difficult to use a transport mode that's not a car. Yeah, exactly. It's this positive feedback loop between creating more of these spaces for cars and then more people wanting to get cars and then creating more spaces and so on and so on. And so actually we need to stop that cycle and focus on ways that we can improve active transport and almost make a positive cycle for active transport would be ideal. Yeah, and get on to breeding the cycle of active transport users So something that I didn't mention, and one of the reasons that I know Lindsay is because she is the coordinator of my master's program. And so I'm doing the master's in urban resilience and renewal. And essentially it's a program where we talk about all the things that we're talking about on this podcast, but with the ability to enter much further detail. The university is taking enrollments at the moment and now's a good time to be starting so feel free to email the podcast or look up a Lindsay Conroe on UC if you're interested to take another leap into this area of study. 
So after listening to Lindsay talk about active transport and the sort of social equity side of transport, what are you inspired to do in your life? Yeah, that's an interesting question. As you know, I'm already quite passionate about biking, but it has got me thinking based on the things I learned about data. I've been logging on apps more of my shorter commutes to show where I'm cycling for just the less than three kilometer routes with the hopes that it might show those sorts of routes and bring better cycle infrastructure to those local areas. What about you, Molly? Well, I am encouraging as many of my friends as I can to join the Aotearoa Bike Challenge, which is something that goes on the whole month of February. You can join and every time you bike, you can log it and earn prizes. And I think it's a really great way to show people how easy it can be to start a biking practice and once you're on the bike you might be inspired to do even more and I see it as a way of just increasing this community of awesome cyclists that we have. Yeah I think when we talk about community with active transport it sounds like it has to be every day but even just trying it, seeing how you feel and doing it on a good weather day is really just the first step. Yeah, so I think everyone should figure out what this episode inspires them to do. Maybe it's to log more of their rides, maybe it's to get into cycling, or maybe it's to figure out what sort of active transport you're most excited about and start doing that. That's all we've got today. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at itsgettinghotinheerpod at gmail.com or you can find us online at plainsfm.org and on our newly established Facebook page, It's Getting Hot In Here podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Kaki te ano. Kaki te.